Hello, and welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Haley Barton, and we are in the season of Lent. And this Lent, we decided to bring focus to the issue of justice because Lent is a season of self-examination and confession and repentance. There's a very specific area that we want to focus on, and that is the area of justice. We know that justice is important to the heart of God, that God identifies God's self as a God of justice, that God declares uh, that I love justice. And in, with the prophet Micah, when the question is asked, what does the Lord require of you? We know that the answer, God's answer was to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And so this is a good season for us to enter into a time of self-examination about how we're doing with this way of being together in the human community that is so important to the heart of God and to examine our ways and see, are we living um, in a way that is correspondent to God's desire for us as his children? And today I am thrilled to have our guest, Dominique Dubois Gilliard. He is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love, Mercy, and Do Justice Initiative of the Evangelical Covenant Church. He is the author of Rethinking Incarceration, advocating for justice that restores, and most recently, subversive witness, scripture's call to leverage privilege. Dominique has served in pastoral ministry in several different locations and has earned his his MDiv from North Park Theological Seminary. And he is currently an adjunct professor there, teaching courses in Christian ethics, theology, missiology, and reconciliation. And I'm also thrilled to welcome back our very own Reverend Tina Harris, who is not only an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church, but she is also an attorney. And so she's bringing depth and substance to our conversations about justice, and she's able to host with me today, which I'm thrilled about. So welcome to the both of you. Thank you. Thank you. It's tragic to be on with you Mm. and your community. Oh, thank you. Well, we are rooting our conversations in two things this season. First of all, there's this little booklet called A Just Passion, a six-week Lenten journey put out by InterVarsity Press. And so we are tracking along with some of the readings and talking with some of the authors in this little work. And so Dominique is one of the authors who's featured and highlighted in this little book. And so we will be referring to his contribution to this book. And then also, because we are the Transforming Center and we enter into the seasons of the church year using the Christian lectionary. We are also following the lectionary readings and choosing one for each one of our podcast conversations. And so today, our scripture is Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. And throughout this season, we are reading from the First Nations version of the Bible and working with Terry Wildman's translation. And in some of our episodes, we'll be able to hear his voice reading directly. But today we have Tina and Tina is going to read from the First Nations version. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Creator sets free. Jesus followed the guidance of the spirit who took him into the desert wilderness to be tested by accuser Satan, the evil trickster snake. For 40 days and nights, Creator sets free. Jesus ate nothing. His body became weak and his hunger grew strong. When the evil snake saw that creator sets free, Jesus was weak and hungry. He came to him and whispered in his ear. Are you the son of the great spirit? He hissed. Prove it by turning these stones into fry bread. The sacred teachings are clear. Creator sets free, Jesus said. Human beings cannot live only on fry bread. 
but on all the words that come from the mouth of the great spirit. The evil trickster then took him to the great spirit's sacred lodge in village of peace, Jerusalem. He set him at the very top, high above the village. Prove you are the son of the great spirit and jump down from here. The evil snake taunted him. Do not the sacred teachings also say his spirit messengers will watch over you to keep you from harm. They will even keep your foot from hitting a stone. Yes, creator sets free, Jesus said back to him. But they also say, do not test the great spirit. Once more, the evil trickster took him to a high mountain and showed him all the great nations of the world with their power and beauty. All of these I will give you, the snake said smoothly, if you will highly honor me and walk in my ways. Get away from me, accuser, Satan, he responded. For it is written in the sacred teachings, the great spirit is the only one to honor and serve. The evil trickster could think of nothing more to test him with, so he slithered away to wait for another time. Then spirit messengers came to give comfort and strength to creator sets free, Jesus. Well, this is the word of the Lord for our conversation today. Thanks Thanks be be to God. Amen. Well, Dominique, I want to start today with the contribution that you made to the little Lenten book that IVP put out, and then we'll go on and talk about some of your other works as well. But I was really struck by your comments about the fact that justice is about relationships. And of course, we're talking about being willing to do some self-examination, confession, and repentance in the area of justice and injustice. And I really love the fact that you located justice within relationships and talked about our conduct within relationships. And I was hoping that you might say a little bit more about that because I think it's easy for us to think about justice as something being kind of a lofty idea that's way out there versus something that is as close and intimate and practical as the relationships that we're a part of. Talk to us a little bit about the relational nature of justice. Yeah, so when we talk about justice, uh, it's really important to understand that justice and righteousness biblically are two sides of the same coin, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Off, and they're inherently wed in Scripture. But I think the way that we read and define righteousness is very different than the way that we think about and apply justice. And so mm-hmm. really, when we talk about justice, we're talking about to live in right relationship, i.e. righteous relationship. Mm-hmm both with God and with one another in creation. And so justice really is about relationships and our posture and our actions within those relationships. Mm -hmm. How do we honor the image of God in every person that we encounter, particularly those who society teaches us to overlook and to avoid and maybe even disdain? Uh, How do we affirm the image of God equitably in all people and how do we understand our right ordered relationship with God as something that informs how we engage with our neighbor and creation at large? Mm-hmm. And so justice really is something that is lived out in how we actually relate to our creator, our neighbor, and creation itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciated how you connected the ideas of justice and righteousness. Both of those can feel very lofty, 
But when we bring it into the realm of relationship, then it's right here, right now with whoever I'm with in this moment, whether it's my intimate ones in my family, whether it's people in the neighboring neighborhood who are who are under-resourced, whether it's someone that I pass on the street, you know, in the inner city of Chicago, that uh, my Christianity, these very basic ideas of justice and righteousness are lived out in those moments, you know, day in and day out. It's nothing more lofty than that, you know. And Dominique, I love that your definition and your approach to it reminds us that every single one of us are to be advocates of justice, to be to live out justice. It's not just for mm-hmm. a select few or the leaders or who we might vote for or who might preach to us. It is truly for every single person. Yeah. Again, going back to what you said earlier, Ruth and Micah 6, what does the Lord mm-hmm. require of you? Mm-hmm. That yeah. say of those who are passionate about social injustice, I require uh, them to be concerned mm-hmm. about justice. It says if you're a follower of Jesus, Hallelujah. this is supposed to be part of the hallmark of our new life in Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we've been reflecting on in different ways with different guests in this season is just the fact that somehow, even though justice is such a strong thread throughout Scripture, both Old Testament and in also in Jesus' teaching, how in the world have we set it aside? How in the world is it so missing? But then Tina pointed out to me, and rightly so, that um, in your communities, there was always a justice theme in the churches Mm -hmm. that you were being raised in. Mm -hmm. So could you say a little bit about that? Because I thought that was a really great place in a conversation between you and I that, that, you know, it depends on your context. Exactly. It's only some contexts where justice is not addressed regularly and routinely. Absolutely. For sure. So my father grew up working for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is mm-hmm. an organization that Dr. King founded during the mm-hmm. Civil Rights Amen. Movement. And because of that, I commonly had civil rights heroes and sheroes at my dinner table growing mm-hmm. up. And so I grew up eating dinner with folks like Hosea Williams and mm-hmm. John Lewis and like, you know, these iconic leaders. Yeah. And what was so clear from their witness was that they understood the inherent connection and wedding between evangelism and justice. Mm -hmm. For them, they refused to submit to or accept a kind of bifurcated gospel that says we pit one against the other, but it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ when they're inherently linked and connected. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I grew up always understanding that it had to be the both and and never either or. And so as I grew up in my congregational formational spaces, I was very committed to a both and as opposed to either or gospel. And it really wasn't until I got older into college and really more so grad school when I started going to more predominantly white congregations where I saw this disconnect and mm-hmm. I was just so thrown off. I was just like, this is, <laughs> this is not the gospel that What's I know. What's going on here? <laughs> and it really kind of set something ablaze in me um, where I started to see like, oh, there are a lot of churches in the world, but particularly in our country who really have settled for this bifurcated gospel Mm. and they don't understand that it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ when it is the both and as opposed to the either or and it really gave me a passion to try to help reconnect what was already and always biblically connected but somehow through our preaching teaching and discipleship had become bifurcated Mm -hmm. 
when did you become aware, Tina, for the first time that some people bifurcate these two? Very similar. My experience was that in the church that I was formed in, um, and I wasn't, I was unchurched as a child. And so it was as a young adult that I was in church. Um, it was a traditionally black church and justice issues were discussed every single Sunday. Mm-hmm. They were part of the announcements <laughs> were part of <laughs> like they were in everything. And if there wasn't a moment, the pastor would have been tone deaf because there was so much in, um, in the ways in which people were dealing with injustice in their lives. And we had to hear it as part of the good news in order to really hang our hat on this uh, gospel. But to me, it was, I was also quite surprised in uh, going into other spaces where I'm like, wait, wait, why, you know, this just happened in the world. Yes, <laughs> why aren't we, why talking, are we talking about, this? about this? Why is this? Everybody's <laughs> quiet. What's going on? It makes me almost, it was felt like I was in a foreign land, like in almost like people were speaking an entirely different language because I thought, how can you miss out on this? This is, it's a shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully we're bringing the two together on this podcast season because we are, we're not going to let it go. Amen. I like normalizing the, you know, the way this, it's almost like justice work for ordinary people. You know, it's um, not something that like happens that. way over there in some organization that has the, the word justice in it. You know, it's mm-hmm. right here in my ordinary life with my relationships So I also appreciated, Dominique, in the entry, your entry in the IVP booklet, that you talked about the things that we have done and the things we have left undone, and you tied it to liturgical prayer that we all pray, which I loved that because we're all used to praying that prayer. You know, we confess what we have done and what we have left undone, but there's never any time left in the service to actually identify, to actually do any self-examination around that. Yeah, what have I left undone? There's no space for that. But it is part of our liturgy. We just don't do much with it. And so you actually list some things that are things that we have left undone. And it strikes me that particularly in the area of justice, that many of our confessions nowadays might fit into the category of the things we have left undone. Hmm. Right? So say a little bit more about the things we have left undone, those sins of omission that we probably need to be confessing or becoming aware of in our lives. Yeah, uh, that's so good. I think I think about it on a couple of different levels. So one, I think about it in a way that Dr. King in his iconic message on the Good Samaritan, mm. he talks about, wow, yes, it's nice to kind of stop and address the wounded person on the roadside. But at some point we got to go upstream and realize Mm -hmm. like, why do so many people keep getting wounded on this particular road? And how do we actually address the Mm -hmm. root causes of what's going on? And I think the most common way in which we have left things undone is our lack of desire or willingness to sacrificially set what we've got going on in our lives aside to tend to the root causes Hmm. of the the pain, the injustice, the oppression that is so prevalent throughout our world. And I think we have adopted a kind of passerby on the other side approach Hmm. that somehow has been blessed and sanctified and we feel legitimated in doing so and believe that we can still simultaneously be bearing a faithful witness. And so I think that would be the most explicit way in which I see that Mm -hmm. kind of happening. But I want to take it to another level. And I think this one is just as problematic. I think the way in which 
a kind of rugged individualism worldview has synchronized within Christianity has caused a lot of believers to really believe, and I believe conform to the pattern of this world in this belief, that we are only responsible for attending to the sins that we have committed Mm. versus having to really reckon with the sins that our foreparents have committed and Mm. still inform and shape outcomes today. And so in my most recent book, I have a a whole section of the chapter where I really look at the biblical call for us to take ancestral sin seriously and for us to be responsible and responding to what we see going on in our world. And I know that's a hard message for a lot of folks. They're like, you know, I never owned slaves. I wasn't part of indigenous genocide. I didn't participate in Japanese internment camps. Mm -hmm. Like, why are you talking to me about this stuff? But when you really listen to scripture or read scripture, I think one of the clearest calls for me, and I'm going to come back to this a little later in the talk, comes from Isaiah 58. And I really love at the end of Isaiah 58, it says that we as the hands and feet of Christ are supposed to be known as the repairers of the breach, restorers of the streets. And it doesn't say we're supposed to be known for repairing the breaches that we created. Hmm. It says that we're supposed to be repairs of the breaches mm-hmm. that exist. And we all Amen. know the breaches emerge from sin. And sin doesn't necessarily have to be a sin that we committed. But once we have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts mm-hmm. to respond to it, we're supposed to be about the work of re- re- restoration and transformation. Mm-hmm. And so I really love that passage, really connected to for God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self. And I really think the way that we've read that passage all too often is God was in Christ reconciling broken people to God's self. But it doesn't say broken people. It doesn't say just me and you, Ruth. It says Mm -hmm. the world, which means our broken systems, our broken structures, and the things that infringe upon the shalom that God created for all God's children and not just some of God's children. Yeah. I was thinking as you were talking about, you know, little children at a certain developmental stage, they think that if if they can't see you, you can't see them, which is why Mm -hmm. peekaboo is such a fun game for them. But it's almost like that here, that if we keep our blinders on and cross far enough on the other side of the road and don't pay attention to things that are happening in the neighborhood over there, it's almost like we think, well, since I can't see it, then it must Mm -hmm. not exist. And mm-hmm. it feels very childish, but it's, it, that's how it seems is if I can just keep my hands over my eyes and not see those things, then maybe it doesn't exist, you know? Mm-hmm. It, so it's, to me, it actually speaks of our development as, as human beings to be willing to see things that have been out of our sight and to believe that, that they're real and to interact with them versus just trying to stay at a distance from everything and keep it outside of our sight. It's really a refusal to function as an interconnected body. That's what Mm -hmm. it is. It is a refusal to live into the biblical commission that when one part of the body hurts, we're all supposed to hurt. Mm -hmm. And I really believe, for me, Scripture is supposed to cultivate compassionate eyes to see, empathetic ears to hear, and tender hearts to respond to the brokenness Mm -hmm. that's in our midst. Mm -hmm. And I think when we allow Scripture to do that, how we respond to the brokenness is categorically different. Mm -hmm. Lastly, I'll just say this is one of the themes for me. Um, You know, everything in this world teaches us that blood is thicker than water. That is everything outside the scriptures that actually tell us that the baptismal waters are thicker than our biological bloodlines. And it's baptism that actually gives us a new identity, a new missional purpose, and a new way of engaging the world. 
And I really wish that we as the body of Christ could go out into the world with a baptismal ethic of belonging, because the world would be a categorically different place if we showed up for one another as if we are what we are, which is family, we belong to one another. And so I think we have an opportunity in this critical juncture where the world is watching and waiting. They're hoping for the church to live into its identity. I really like uh, Acts 6, 1 through 7, particularly in verse 7, where it talks about the church, the early church having this opportunity to respond to a, a blind spot in their midst. And when they are mature enough to do so, it says that other church leaders in the city became more faithful to the gospel and the numbers of people who came into the body of Christ increased dramatically. Like, and it's the same thing right now. Like the world is watching and waiting and they're hoping that the church lives into its identity. And I just want us to know, like when we do so, the fruitfulness will be immense, but we've got to be willing to do our part of maturely and soberly assessing our lives and our witness so that we can understand where the spirit is trying to cultivate newness and lead us into beyond our comfort zones. Dominique, I'm curious, for those who have told you that they didn't own slaves, that they were not part of the genocide, that they were not um, uh, there when there were Japanese internment camps, what do you recommend or how do you lovingly counsel them (laughs) to (laughs) acknowledge the ways in which they've benefited from that, but also how do they start doing that work, that justice relational work of while that might not be the sin that they committed, they are still responsible for it. What, what do you think is the, or what do you suggest is the first step for them? Hmm. It's a beautiful question. Um, So one of the things I do is I, I point them actually to Acts 16, verses 16 through 40 in the story of Paul and Silas and the way that they actually subversively used their Roman citizenship to advocate for justice for non-Roman citizens who were ensnared within Rome's judicial system and stood no chance of receiving justice. So I think that's a beautiful biblical example of folks who understood where their true identity was and were willing to leverage a worldly identity to bear witness to their true citizenship. I think it's an instructive model for us. But I think beyond that, I point to this conversation around like biblical justice. Like what do we actually see God calling us to collectively as a people? We are supposed to be constructing a society that takes a passage like Matthew 25, 31 through 46 seriously. Who are the least of these? Why are they the least of these? Are there structural realities that are re-perpetuating this kind of leastness? And if so, what are we supposed to be doing in response to that? How do we take seriously things like the racial wealth gap? How do we take seriously the overrepresentation of certain communities within our criminal justice system? Do mm-hmm. we just pathologize people in communities mm-hmm. or do we look at the structural realities that are breeding this kind of disparity? Do we take seriously like a study that was done in Chicago, beautiful study called Million Dollar Blocks? where they wanted to see how many single city blocks within the city of Chicago had over a million dollars invested in incarcerating residents from one single city block. Wow. Chicago had, I want to say, $851 million blocks. 
And every single one of those million dollar blocks were on the south and the west side of the city where black and brown mm. people disproportionately Mercy. live. Not one single million dollar block in the loop or on the north mm-hmm. side of the city. And million dollar blocks were hallmarked as non-white communities with high rates of foreclosure, home foreclosures, and school closures. So we're literally talking about the least of these folks with Mm -hmm. the least opportunities, the least access, the least ability to really uh, invest in their own development and then be able to come out of that investment and land a tangible living wage paying job. What does it mean for us to know that we live in cities where this kind of structural reality is at play but we can turn a blind eye to it because it's not directly impacting us. So I think I try to like help paint the picture to say like, yes, you didn't do this, but the way this society is still set up, it's structured in a way that's going to continue to produce disproportionate benefits from some and limit, if not disenfranchise others. And so if we are really trying to cultivate a reality to go back uh, to you, Ruth, where we are living until liturgical prayer, where we pray that kingdom come that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If that's really what we're trying to pursue, then we can't ignore those kind of realities. Mm -hmm. We've got to really start to deal with the structural impediments that keep all of God's children from being able to collectively flourish. So you, you identify inaction, silence, and indifference as those things that are those things that are left undone and you characterize them as relational failures which which i think i mean we understand that there are systemic issues that need to be dealt with but again that kind of distances us sometimes from what we think we can do but to call those relational failures it means that i'm failing in my relationships with other human beings i mean that's that's a very penetrating idea i think and, and failing in our relationships with others of God's children whom God loves is, you know, very, I think, very convicting. Well, I just wish they would leave a little bit more space then after we <laughs> confess what we have done and what we've left undone. I wish that we could have about 15 minutes or so to scroll through our lives and to say, okay, you know, what have I left undone? It reminds me also of the placard during some of the protests after George Floyd's murder that silence is complicity. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what you're getting at as well is that these omissions, these sins of omissions actually make us complicit with unjust systems. Oof. One of the most powerful things I've seen recently is a lot of times when I'm working uh, with congregations, I have some older leaders or lay people say, you know, I feel so bad about all of the things that I now know that I Mm -hmm. didn't know before. And I always encourage them. I say, you know, as the matriarch or the patriarch at a family gathering, let's use Thanksgiving, for example. Don't you know that you have the power and the influence to, de- to determine what's going to be actually talked about at the mm. table? I said, you have the opportunity to explain to your children and your grandchildren, hey, I once believed this. I once thought this, but I had this encounter. I had this experience. And now I realize that this is actually mm. kind of a more faithful way to live and love. And I'm just like, there there are things that we as everyday people have the opportunity to do if we actually can really soberly assess Mm -hmm. our influence and Mm -hmm. the way in which we have an opportunity to bear witness that, you know, 
metaphorically, I was once blind, but now I see. Like, these are the things that God has orchestrated in my life that have helped me realize that the way that I used to think about this was actually problematic. And there's a more faithful way to engage. And I want you to know this now because nobody ever did this for me. And so I actually get the opportunity Mm. to be the change I want us to see through just being a grandparent, just being a parent, just being an aunt or uncle. And there are all these very powerful ways rooted in relationship that we can actually encourage one another into greater faithfulness. I'm just giggling because I don't think anybody expects a grandma to do that. So if a grandma or grandpa were to do that, people would sit up and notice because it's usually not that voice who's bringing these truths. Mm -hmm. It's usually the younger people sitting around trying to convince the older generation. So that would be quite a different Thanksgiving dinner. That's for sure. (laughs) Well, continuing on in our spirit of Lent and, you know, our willingness to be made aware of things that we've been unaware of, let's talk a little bit about your new book, Subversive Subversive Witness, Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege, and some of the ideas that you have there. I think Tina has a question she'd like to ask. Well, and it sort of ties on to the thought of an everyday practice. You, in one of your chapters, which, thank you for the book. (laughs) Thank you for this offering. But in one of your chapters, you talk about uh, civil disobedience. And Mm -hmm. so in this time of Lynn, I was just curious about, um, I'd love to know your thoughts on whether or not you consider civil disobedience a practice. um, (laughs) And is it a a spiritual practice for the everyday person? Yeah. (laughs) Let's Mm. start there. And yeah, fire today. she does. She does bring it, doesn't she? That's why I invited her. We're not going to let this guy off easy. Just <laughs> bring in the big guns. Yeah, for sure. Yes, mm-hmm. civil disobedience is a spiritual practice. It is a biblically based practice. It is something for everyday people to engage in. I think it manifests itself in a myriad of ways. So I just want to first give just a couple of biblical examples of civil yeah. disobedience so people don't think I'm just theorizing. The first example I love to start with, which was never framed as civil disobedience for me, um, comes with Moses's mother when he is born into mm-hmm. a society where he it must be put to death because of his ethnicity and his gender. And she ultimately harbors him as a fugitive until she can no longer do so. And then she has to ultimately entrust him to God and the spirit leads him into safety in a very miraculous way. And I have a whole chapter in the book on that. But I also think another example is uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, another example of civil, civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. The most popular example of civil disobedience that we don't always call civil disobedience, and I think in not doing so, we actually limit our spiritual imagination around spirit, mm. around civil disobedience, is Mary and Joseph. Mm taking Jesus mm-hmm. because they know the harm that was intended for him. Um, mm-hmm. So these are all acts of civil disobedience where the spirit of God leads the people of God to resist an unjust law that ultimately is going to bring death, destruction, and despair when God desires life flourishing and liberation. And so I think civil disobedience is something that's woven throughout scripture and it is really the fruit of people who are earnestly seeking after the face of God and who are willing to kind of in a Romans 12 type way to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice to understand that like 
the gospel calls for more than just heart change. The gospel calls us to give our lives in totality. And that means also putting our physical bodies on the line to bear witness to who and whose we are as God's children. And so civil disobedience is one of the most consistent ways throughout scripture we see that lived out. But it's also something that brings us into the present moment in a way that I think makes a lot of people a little bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Like you can tell these biblical stories and they feel nice and good because they're so far away. But when we start to talk about present realities, then it gets a little bit more uncomfortable. I also want to give a shout out to Esther, another person who, uh, Esther and Queen Vashti, they both Mm -hmm. practice civil disobedience. So like, it's just laced throughout the text. And so I think Moses in his (laughs) let my people go, all civil disobedience, disobedience like it's soaked throughout the pages of scripture but we don't talk about civil disobedience in that way particularly when we talk about faithful spiritual practices would you put that in the same category as nonviolent resistance then it doesn't have to be but they Mm -hmm. are connected so there are forms of civil disobedience that i think might not necessarily be fall into that category, but they mm-hmm. are inherently linked yeah. um, in the fact that they both come from the posture that I think Paul's really calling us to in Romans 13, you know, this very problematically read and interpreted passage. But ultimately, mm-hmm. where Paul is saying, if you are to resist the earthly authorities, you have to be willing to submit yourself to whatever punishment comes along with that resistance. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, As Christians, we know that we are pursuing the will of God. When Mm -hmm. we live in a society where an earthly leader has other priorities, Mm -hmm. then, you know, we're going to be in this situation where we have to choose this day what we're going to follow. Are we going to follow the patterns of this world or the logic of empire and our earthly leader? Or are we going to be committed to what the word calls us to be? And in doing so, sometimes that means we're going to endure physical persecution, i.e. Act 16, um, Paul and Silas, or it might mean that we're not going to actually have to endure physical persecution, but there will be some kind of punishment that we will have to endure in response to our witness. Mm. So, This is risky stuff. (laughs) Amen. So I have a question for both you, Dominique and Ruth. I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on this. And this is a uh, question that came directly out of your book, Dominique. So I'm just using one of your um, resources. Thank you. Uh, At the end of chapter two. (laughs) She's a a great one right there. I mean, it's right here for you. You might as well use it. It's amazing. Uh, But, and Ruth, if you would answer first, this would be great. But the question is, what do you believe keeps good people silent and complicit when they know their neighbor is being dehumanized oppressed, exploited, and or massacred? Mm-hmm. Well, privilege itself, <laughs> you know, once once a person is living in a position of privilege, they're going to try to protect that. And so I think one of the ways to protect it is to not even acknowledge that others are having to live differently and being forced to live differently. So I think it's inherent in privilege and the way that we maintain and protect our own privilege is that we don't want to see what's going on for others and disrupt our own privileged lifestyles by attending to what's happening in other people's lives. The sacrifice, I think there's a real sacrifice to engage with those whose situation is different than one's own. And so sometimes we are unwilling to sacrifice ourselves and our privilege in order 
to engage in the plight of others in, in redemptive ways. Laziness, I think there can be mm. laziness where we just really like our life the way it is, don't want to disrupt it or do something that requires a lot of us or anything more from us. And of course, spiritual blindness too. I mean, I'm hoping that we're farther from that than we used to be culturally because of the wonderful work that people are doing around these issues. But I think there can be a certain sort of spiritual blindness where we don't want to see, so we don't. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. Richard Rohr talks about the fact that people can only see what they're ready to see, that mm -hmm. we cannot see what we're not ready to see. Mm -hmm. And so there can be a, a certain spiritual blindness as well until the scales fall from our eyes. And, and that is a work of God. That's a work of grace. Yeah. You can't force that on people. But th there's a lack of readiness sometimes that we preserve to the detriment of others. So those are mm -hmm. some, some ideas mm -hmm. that I have. So I'll riddle you off four things real quick that I think okay. of. So the first thing I think of is one of the seductive things about privilege or even economic access is that it can slowly but surely seduce you into isolation and insulation hmm. where you aren't even aware of what's going on beyond your little bubble. Amen. Like I think about Moses. Moses didn't really understand what his people was going through until he left the yeah. prestige of the, the palace. I think the same thing with Esther. It wasn't until Mordecai comes to the gates and is like stripping his clothes mm -hmm. and it's like where she's like, oh, like it's it's to that extent. I think there is this way in which we we can't know a lot of times because we're so isolated, which brings me to the second point, which I love the way that Brian Stephen talks about this, but the power of proximity. Yeah. Like we need proximity to those who suffer in ways that we don't for us to understand how urgent these issues are. The, for me, the most powerful passage about the power of proximity is Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And, you know, in this, Jesus is saying, if we are not with people who yeah. suffer in these ways, there's something about the gospel that we're going to miss out on. Mm -hmm. There is an urgency that's unleashed relationally when we're with mm -hmm. people who suffer in ways that we don't. I say the other thing is I think the empire has done a better job of compelling people to really believe that if they align themselves with the status quo that they will the trinkets of empire are better than the fruits hmm. of solidarity and i think when the system works for you and everybody mostly everybody around you just goes along to get along it's so hard to make a countercultural choice to try to swim upstream and to believe that something else is possible and so i think we've got to do a better job in the church of articulating a robust enticing vision of solidarity mm -hmm. that helps people to understand that the temporal loss of choosing to function as an inter interconnected body is well worth what you're ultimately having to give up in regards to the spoils of empire. And then the last reason why I think we choose this is I honestly think, I honestly think that we really do struggle with this notion of individualism versus collectivism. Mm -hmm. To go back to Jeremiah, this notion that when we seek the peace and the prosperity of the city, that's where our individual flourishing is found. 
I don't think we really believe that. I think mm. we struggle to believe that when I take on the mindset of Christ and I put on put the interests and needs of others before my own, that's truly how I flourish. Because everything else in the world tells us the exact opposite message. <laughs> it says when you put you and yourself and your own first, that's where you flourish. And then out of that flourishing, you can be charitable, but you don't put the needs and interests of other people before your own. You don't actually seek collective liberation and freedom first in the belief that ultimately your liberation is connected to the liberation Mm. of other people. And so I think those are the four reasons why I think it can be so easy for good Christian, well-intended, moral Mm -hmm. people to turn a blind eye when these things are happening to other people. Hmm. Amen and hallelujah. (laughs) Is there anything we missed, Tina? Mm -mm. Okay. Speak now or forever hold your peace. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm going to take us to one more sort of deep topic that is rarely addressed, or at least that's what I've been finding, is oftentimes I'll watch the reconciliation efforts between white men and black men, and there's Uh no consideration at all for gender. And I've been in some interesting conversations where a black man will share his experience and a brave black woman will raise her hand and say, I really appreciate your story, but my experience is different than that. And then she'll go off and we're like, wow. And, And so one of the things that I've observed is that oftentimes we want to talk about race disconnected from gender. So I was really thrilled in your book later towards the end where you did grapple with the subject of race and gender together. Racial reconciliation's failure to interrogate patriarchy means that it will frequently reproduce the subordination of women. As we continue to address racism and white supremacy, we must stop treating patriarchy as a secondary sin. We must begin addressing sexual violence, intimate partner violence, and rape culture within the spaces God has entrusted us to steward, be they churches, nonprofits, campuses, or camp settings. Ooh, hmm. I was so glad to Thank see you. that in your book. What what has your journey been to bringing those two things together in your own thinking and in your own Mm. spiritual process? Because I appreciate it so much. Mm. Thanks for the question. So my mom is a pastor who has emerged and elevated into a bishop within our denominational Mm. structure. She's she's Mm. the first woman of color bishop in our denomination's history. Amen. And I remember, well, so first it starts with her. And then I also just remember in seminary, some of the without question most called and gifted peers that I had were women. But when it came to the call process, they were the ones who routinely jumped over for other people Mm -hmm. who honestly were less called and gifted and committed to the Mm -hmm. call. And it just would break my heart to see people who got it so clearly gifted and called to the ministry have to go and do other vocations because the church wasn't willing to deal with its internal biases. But I think beyond that, you know, I think the thing that really gives us credibility in our witness is when we're willing to talk about the things that benefit us that are still problematic. Like it would have been really easy for me as a black man to write a book about privilege and just to talk about race. 
but the thing that like gives me credibility on some level is for me to be able to deconstruct patriarchy and talk about how the system actually works for me but in the midst of working for me because of who and whose i am i'm supposed to work against that structure to create a more just and equitable structure where everybody can flourish from everything when you become part of the Christian speaking circuit is everything from saying, hey, you invited me to speak at this conference, but there's no women on the speaker mm-hmm. lineup. Yes. I'm not willing to speak at this conference if yes. that's going to be your posture to doing Woo-hoo. things like... <laughs> we just things, have to hoop and holler a little yes. bit here. <laughs> <laughs> to doing things like saying, you know, mm-hmm. if I wrote this book about solidarity and, you know, a subversive witness, you know, Am I also willing to dedicate some of the proceeds of my book to go to people who oftentimes don't get the same limelight or don't have the same access, but who are doing just as faithful work? I mean, particularly folks in disenfranchised communities or people or women, women of color, most specifically immigrant women. How are you living out what it is that you're practicing, uh, preaching? And then lastly, it just I was just so disturbed by how often scripture is explicitly calling us to reckon with patriarchy sexual violence Mm. all this type of abuse but because of the ways that we have chosen and i say we specifically meaning majority male middle to upper class heterosexual males have chosen to interpret these passages in a way that allows us to like go around what scripture is actually calling us to address and in doing so we've created safe havens for violence within our congregations there are people who are enacting physical sexual violence who feel comfortable in our congregations because they know we're not going to preach or teach or disciple folks around this Mm -hmm. explicitly in part sometimes because we don't want to be held to the standard of what the word is calling us to. So we like dance around it. And other times it's more just, it just feels too hard of a conversation. So we just don't, we choose not to have it. But I really believe if the spirit is leading us somewhere, the spirit is going to be faithful to see us through the conversation. And so we've got to be willing to have these hard conversations. Uh, The same way that we say we have to have the hard conversations about race, we have to have the hard conversations about patriarchy. We have to have the hard conversations Mm -hmm. about sexism in general. We have to have the hard conversation about ableism and mental cognition and all of these different manifestations of privilege or um, injustice in which people are not having the fullness of the image of God affirmed in them because of how God created them. Like we've got to have these conversations. And until we do, the rest of the world is going to look at the church and say, where is your integrity? Where is your credibility? Mm -hmm. I love this quote real quick from Dr. King. In the 60s, he said, if the church doesn't recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. And when you look at how young folks, and I'll just cap it and say people 40 and under, feel about the church and how they're responding to the church, that's exactly how so many of them feel. They're saying I'm opting for something else because I can have real conversations about patriarchy around capitalism, around racism, around anything and everything that matters anywhere but in the church. So Mm -hmm. I talked to my best friend about this. I talked to my therapist about this. I talked to my spiritual director about this. I talked to everybody about this. But when I come in these four walls, for whatever reason, these conversations feel taboo. 
And so this is going to be a community committed to silence or indifference or turning the blind eye. Like, I'm not going to give myself to this community. And I think we're really going to have to reckon with this if we really want to course correct as the Western church today. Well, I really appreciate uh, this conversation that we've had today. And I'm wondering, Dominique, if you would just offer up a practice, give us a call to a practice. How can we, as we are in the midst of Lent and seeking out practices that help us to become more self-aware and make it possible for us to acknowledge and confess sin in our lives and move to, to a new place, what would you offer up as a call to practice for those of us who want to do justice and become justice leaders ourselves in whatever settings we're in? Yeah, thanks for the question. The verse, the most tangible practice I can offer up is really to ask the church to root its fast in Isaiah 58. Mm. There's not a biblical passage that more explicitly calls us to fasting and tells us what God expects of a fast and how different what we want to do in regards to fasting Mm -hmm. is from what God desires. So really rooting our fast in Isaiah 58. But I think there is a a liturgical rhythm I want to invite us into as well. And that's uh, remembrance, remembering who God is, God's faithfulness, God's sovereignty, where God took Israel from and, and actually made Israel promise to not reenact against other people (laughs) but when they realized the liberation the way in which god acted on their behalf so that they could be free he also said don't do this to other people and so this remembrance of who and whose we are and what we're called to be in the world but then a confession that we're not always that like we come up short we miss the mark and when we miss the mark there are impacts of that missing of the mark. And then we're supposed to lament the impact of us not living into our identity and who we're called to be and what happens in the world when we don't live into our identity. And then after we do the remembrance, the confession, the lament, we're supposed to engage in repentance. And repentance is the turning away from sin, turning back to God and The biblical call to repentance that I resonate most strongly with is really John the Baptist's call, where he says that we're supposed to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Like repentance isn't this just abstract thing. It is something that's supposed to actually birth tangible fruit in our lives and our relationships in our communities because we've turned away from sin and turned back to God. And in doing so, we're producing kingdom fruit. So I want to just give a real small example real quick of the conversation we were just having. And one of the ways I really think about this is super powerful is when we think about the story of David and, you know, how David rapes Bathsheba and kills her husband. Mm -hmm. And then he goes and he has this authentic repentance before God. He but if we're really honest, and I want us to I want to push us towards honesty and really rooting ourselves in the scriptures, David doesn't do what he ultimately was supposed to do. I think the way that we celebrate David and the way we lift him up lets him off the hook a bit because yes, he authentically repents, but David doesn't do what he really should have done, which is produce fruit in keeping with repentance, mm-hmm. because he doesn't teach his son to not mm. replicate his toxic masculinity, his 
violent ways. And because of that, his daughter has to pay the consequence in one of the most tragic stories in scripture. And so I really want to push us beyond this notion of repentance as this one-time act where we show contrition and push us more towards what John the Baptist is saying is repentance as a form of lifestyle that produces kingdom fruit in our relationships and in our communities. I think it's a much healthier place to land, um, and it helps us to really start to distinguish between how scriptures define repentance and how we can sometimes want to self-define it. Well, I think that that takes us beautifully to the psalm for this week uh, in Lent, and so I'd like to close us with the practices in mind, the liturgical rhythm in mind that you've laid out for us so clearly because it just leads us right to Psalm 32, which is the psalm for this week. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered after you worked through the rhythm, right? After you've worked through the rhythm. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit, the honesty that you were talking about. We have to be honest. We have to push through to the honesty. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. There it is, the confession, part of the rhythm that you just gave us. I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And then God says, I will instruct you and teach you the way that you should go, the fruits consistent with repentance. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. May we live this beautiful and powerful and impactful liturgical rhythm and on our way to greater levels of righteousness. Amen. Amen.